Welcome to the Be Well at USASC podcast with me, Peter Headley. In each episode, members of the USASC and wider community will join me to share ideas and provide guidance on all aspects of being well. And we'll be highlighting campus initiatives and resources designed to engage and support you. In these challenging times, we hope the ideas and information we share will help. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Matt Walsfeld, who works as the Community Engagement Coordinator at the Office of Sustainability at the University. We're going to be exploring the work that the office does, and we also talk about our responsibility for safeguarding our environment, as well as why the human race doesn't panic about the climate crisis like we have done about COVID-19. Well, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me, Peter. Can you start off telling me a little about how you got involved with sustainability and what your role at the Office of Sustainability at the university involves? Sure. Um, So I originally came from a bachelor's in biology at the University of Saskatchewan. I ended up doing a master's degree in sustainable environmental management at the School of Environment and Sustainability on campus. And from there, I took kind of a, uh, a really wobbly career pathway through a bunch of different areas. I worked with the Ministry of Highways for a while doing environmental policy. Um, I worked out at the Prairie Swine Center doing some uh, engineering sustainability. I worked down in the Bahamas doing some environmental education with the Ministry of Environment there and a lot of different school systems. So I really spread myself across a lot of different areas and realized that um, sustainability is kind of this intersection of all of these different human points. You know, we have engineering, we have policy, we have education, all of these different parts of the human experience all come to meet in the center. And so that's where I kind of found myself in this place where uh, the community engagement aspect of it, the working with different people to understand and educate and get them involved in things really made a lot of sense to me. So uh, I was able to apply to the Office of Sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan, which was a great fit considering that I had done all of my education at the university and was born and raised in Saskatoon. Uh, Yeah, it just made a whole lot of sense to me to be able to start working with the office. And so what does day-to-day work look like for you? And, and maybe maybe as a precursor, when we say sustainability, what, what, what do we mean by that word? So sustainability, uh, despite my actually working in the area, I hate the word. It's, it's become a buzzword in a lot of ways, and it can be used in a lot of different ways. If we look at the original 1988 definition from the UN uh, Brundtland Report, it, uh, it essentially refers to being able to take care of the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future, making sure that we can take care of ourselves right now and not leave the earth or the economy or the society in any sort of situation where those generations after us are going to have a much harder time of it. When we get down to actually the modern sort of view of that, it gets really, really complicated um, for a number of reasons that I think we're going to get into. But... I I like to encourage people to think of sustainability really just at its heart distilled down to be reducing our consumption and use of resources. Thinking about how much we're using, how much we really need to use, and whether or not we can get by with more efficient mechanisms, using less, things like that. So at the office, my day-to-day is really making sure that I connect with the staff, students, and faculty of the University of Saskatchewan, make sure that they understand what sustainability is along the same lines that I was just talking about. They understand what's going on at the university through our different communications, through our reports that we make available, through our programs that we make, um, that we uh, host for staff and students and faculty. And 
most importantly, making sure that they know that they can get involved. Sustainability is a very individual thing. Um, it's very behavior based. And so people need to understand how they can take part and how they can actually change their own behavior and get involved in sustainability and help change campus for better. So we do have a, a campus sustainability plan and one of the goals or the key goal focuses on all members of the campus community intentionally choosing and initiating sustainable behavior in all areas of campus life. Can you tell me a little about what sustainable behavior actually looks like? And, and I guess in a sense, are you battling against human nature and human behavior every day in your work with this notion of sustainable behavior? Yeah, um, I really love that question because it is really, really behavior based and and it is kind of a battle. Um, sustainable behavior is actually a fairly complicated concept. There's nothing simple about it that we can get to. Like I said, we can distill it down to reducing our use of uh, resources and our basic consumption needs. But modern life has made things vastly more complicated than life would have been 50 years ago. 100 years ago, even 20 years ago. Um, globally connected economies and supply chains have really, really overcomplicated a lot of these things for the average person. So every single time that we buy something, eat something, use something, we have questions to ask like, where does it come from? How is it farmed or made? How is it transported? Was it processed through other energy intensive processes? Does it use energy? How is it packaged? All of those things have downstream sustainability impacts. You know, if it's packaged with plastic wrap, we know that that plastic has to be made from oil resources that have to be mined from somewhere. Normally, um, you know, if they're mined in Canada, the workers are being fairly con compensated. If they're being mined in Libya, maybe not. Maybe we have, you know, uh, poor labor practices that are in, in place. Um, there's a lot of different angles to all of these different issues that we have to consider. Also, when we look at the places that we live, uh, a lot of our 20th century and 21st century patterns of urban development, especially in larger North American cities, have really pushed emissions heavy ways of living for us. Um, we all have an over-reliance on personal vehicles because of suburban sprawl. We have a prol proliferations of really complicated highway and freeway networks that make it so that everybody has to kind of drive everywhere if you want to get to the central areas of town. Um, and we really have underdeveloped public transit uh, when we look at the rest of the world, mostly because we have kind of just gotten used to these, you know, 50, even 100 years now of of relying on these personal vehicles. Uh, we've also got this system where we have sort of this ability to control our temperature all year round, living in the cold parts of the country. We have heating, what, six to eight months of the year. But we also live in Saskatchewan, which has some of the highest temper differentials on Earth. And so in the summertime, air conditioning is also the norm. So we're using energy to constantly adjust our uh, temperature systems throughout the year. And that energy has to come from somewhere. Also, the fact that in North America, we have this high level of relative global wealth and we live in a really consumer oriented capitalist economy. It kind of forces overconsumption on us all. We all live in this kind of fear that if we don't consume, the economy slows to a halt and we all are going to you know, perish. And so we have this idea that we have to keep using more if we want to keep going forward. And all of those things kind of work against us. So when we combine all of this complicated stuff, it can be really, really intense for people to think, how can I actually do anything about it? Because everything is far bigger than me. And that's where we have to get into this idea that individual behavior change is absolutely necessary. Every one of us has to take small, make small choices and sort of 
curb our impacts in small ways. This behavior change is really difficult. It's all tied to really complicated neural pathways that are extremely difficult to change. Uh, when you said, are we fighting against human behavior and human nature? It is kind of it. Human nature has in a lot of ways been co-opted by our modern consumer-driven society. So we're fighting against these two really strongly embedded forces, our, our base nature versus the society that's crafting us every day. So what I try and do with the office and just in my position in general is trying to help people bridge that gap between knowledge, knowing about these issues and where things come from and what are the complications behind them and helping them bridge that between the psychological tools and motivation that they need to actually make their own decisions and change things for the better. And so, yeah, it, it always makes me smile because I, 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 I lived in Europe before I grew up in the UK and I remember commenting to my wife on the first time I'd ever gone through a drive through to get a coffee. And just that combination of rather than what would have traditionally been I walked down the street or I got on a bus, I, I went to a shop. I, I was actually sitting, literally running the engine of my car, waiting behind several cars to actually pick up a coffee. And it just struck me as incredible. But the sad part is, and talking about human behavior, it doesn't strike me as incredible anymore. I do it quite regularly. It's become quite quite a normal thing. Mm -hmm. I went to go pick up some compost from the uh, the city compost yards. And of course, you know, you had a, a bunch of people who were excited to do it at the beginning of the year. You can only get out there by driving out there. Everybody's got to take some sort of larger vehicle or a truck to pick it up. So here I am, the sustainability community engagement <laughs> coordinator at the university, sitting in this line of trucks and SUVs that are all idling at the side of the highway waiting mm -hmm. to go pick up their compost. So yeah, it's you're you don't really get to escape it in a lot of ways. So in an earlier episode of the podcast, I talked to one of the USAS therapists, Ken McLeod, about the importance of reconnecting with nature for greater personal health and well-being. What relationship does the work you're doing actually have with that health and wellness piece? Because I would imagine when talking about behavioral change, that's an important connection for people. Oh, for sure. Um there are a lot of connections between sustainability and health and wellness. Um, if we look at, like we've ch changed perspectives over the years. The original model that we kind of looked at sustainability in was this environment, economy, and society um, trilogy where we saw them each as pillars that all had to be maintained at the same time. We've kind of um, moved on from that a little bit, but that original uh, viewpoint still kind of gives us a really basic understanding of those connections. If we look at the environmental side, we look at access to healthy air and water. Uh, we're looking at the emotional and psychological well-being of connecting with nature, like uh, like the therapist was talking about. Uh, we're looking at a decreased reliance on pollution and dangerous chemicals that we're putting into the environment. If we're looking at the economic side of things, it relates to having good work opportunities, uh, fair compensation, and appropriate benefits that are attached with those, uh, ensuring that society is able to distribute the resources that it has access to fairly across everybody, which generates a collective sense of well-being for us. If we look at the society side of things, our healthcare systems are directly attached to that. So there's right there uh, the health connection. But on the society side, we also look at our abilities to be educated and informed on topics, our access to public services, our safety and protection through our justice system, our rights to be fairly involved in democracy. All of these things are very, very tied to our sense of well-being and our sense of um, living sort of a healthy and fulfilled life. Um, in our more modern perspective, uh, 
the the baseline for sustain for sustainability is kind of the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they're split out into these much more clearly defined categories than just environment, society, and economy, which makes it really easy for people to interact with them. One of those SDGs specifically is actually just good health and well-being. So it's a pretty clear connection. But the more you dig into all the 16 other ones, you all find them having to relate back to it in one way or another. If we're looking at life under the water, well, obviously that relates to fishing stocks around the world. That relates to coral reef systems that are going to be um, propping up essentially entire marine ecosystems that are going to impact land ecosystems. There's always going to be this interconnectedness in all these topics. So it's very difficult to extricate sustainability from our health and well-being. And so with, with that in mind and turning our attention to our current situation with, with so many of us sort of, um, you know, isolated and not, not in our normal work environment, there's quite a few things that, that have really been striking me about the environment at the moment. Um, one of them is around this notion of, uh, of our own sustainability as a human race, I, I guess. But, but the other one is this relationship of what seems to be happening, that nature seems to be finding its way back. Um, you know, the clean water that we're seeing, even animals actually invading uh, urban spaces, these videos that we find ourselves seeing at the moment. What I just I'm really curious as to your uh, reflections upon what's happening in the world um, to us as a human race, but to also to, to wider nature. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting perspective um, that people can take. Sometimes when people get really down on the topics of sustainability, you'll hear things like, oh, the, you know, the world is going to be destroyed. And, and you have to remind people the world isn't going to end. It'll go on without us. Humans might end, but we can see very obviously animals will come and invade the spaces. Nature will take over again. It finds a way around. Um, well, I, I thought this, uh, I was actually at the, um, the dinosaur park actually last summer. I'm walking through the dinosaur museum and it, it did occur to me that this could happen to us. Like this mm -hmm. could be us. <laughs> yep. And yet the the same maxim from Jurassic Park still lives. Life finds a way. Um, if we're looking at how humans are going to sort of be able to still sustainably survive going into the future. Um, yeah, this COVID crisis is giving us a lot of really important things to look at. And it's difficult to see what lessons we're going to take from this, but there are some really important ones that we can look at and, you know, try and push ourselves to consider. Energy systems are the big one. Uh, they're often driving the climate crisis in terms of our fuel and our energy sources. Um, what we're seeing during COVID is kind of this uh, give and take. On the one hand, transport emissions and manufacturing emissions are way down around the world uh, as our manufacturing uh, supply chains have kind of really stumbled and in some cases uh, sort of grinded to a halt. We're actually seeing the emissions associated with those factories and the transport of them really go down. And as people are working from home, we're seeing a lot of those transport emissions from personal vehicles uh, cease to exist. If you're looking at places around the world, um, like uh, a lot of the major cities in China or India where air pollution is a huge problem, um, you can see a stark difference between now and even four months ago. So those are, on the one hand, uh, temporary good things. A lot of us in the sustainability community are very hesitant because those could all be temporary changes. We could go exactly back to normal once all of this is done. And so we have to look at you know what we want to keep from from now 
and uh, when we're back to normal, you know, where can we kind of cut back a little bit? The other thing that we have to consider with everybody working from home is that it is actually much less efficient to power an individual home than it is to power the equivalent space in a large commercial, industrial, or institutional property. So when we power the university, when we provide heat and electricity to everybody working at the university, there's a lot of energy required to do that. But all of those people working at home from their individual spaces, even though it may be an equivalent amount of floor space, will actually require more energy because it's a less if efficient process to do it for all those individual homes. So the fact that we're doing that not just with the university, but with workplaces all around the world means that our generalized energy efficiency has gone down. And so that can give us a couple of ways to go. Um, one, we can start to look at how we arrange our work in the future. Likely, it is going to be more energy efficient to do some sort of still co-working spaces, office complexes, institutional complexes, uh, things like that to get people you know, working in a more energy efficient place. We can also start looking at making increasing the efficiency of our home energy usage a lot easier and more affordable for a lot of people. Uh, looking at further subsidies to, you know, invest in smart houses and um, really energy efficient homes in terms of heating and cooling. Um, the other thing that we can look at is the impacts that we've had on our uh, global supply chains. Our interconnected global supply chains have really made our life as we know it possible, but they've also inflated the risk of pandemics like this and global market shocks. You know, something that happens in China no longer just stays in China. Um, a housing crisis in the United States can threaten to destroy the entire global economy. So the fact that we have all of, essentially all of the global economy at our fingertips at any given moment also means that we are going to be um, really connected to any sort of minor shockwaves that happen around the world. And we have to be ready to deal with that in a global response. Uh, COVID has seen that kind of happen to some degree. A lot of countries have worked together to provide medical materials with each other, to, to cooperate on different responses. Um, but we also have seen sort of uh, a recent rise in nationalism and authoritarianism in the past couple of years that are seeing people or countries start to close their borders or start to try and act in isolated ways when really that's just not realistic in this global environment. So we have to look at how we're going to go forward in that sense. Um, on the waste side of things, there's actually a very specific issue that's arising out of this, and that's the management of medical waste. Um, in general, medical waste has been kind of poorly managed around the world. In, uh, in developed countries, we generally have uh, systems and procedures for this sort of things. But around the world, especially in underdeveloped nations, that medical waste often ends up just in landfills or at the best case, in the worst case, in ditches or waterways. And with a pandemic like this, when that amount of medical waste is just blown way out of proportion than it normally is, we have to look at how uh, we're getting these medical supplies around the world, what they're being exposed to, and how we're effectively managing them to keep our environment safe from the impacts of that. Um, and then I guess the other side of uh, the last aspect that I can see is the impact that we've seen on our work styles and our lifestyles. Um, 
A lot of people working from home have had a very, very difficult shift from working at the office, uh, whether it be working with kids or not having access to IT infrastructure or just finding it difficult to get into routines. But something that I've also heard from almost everybody I've talked to is that despite those hiccups, it's actually kind of a preferable change. A lot of people are really, really enjoying it because they're finding that um, the style of work is really you know, flexible. We have more opportunities to work from home than we thought. And when we do, we are not losing our mind in commutes. We're being closer to family and friends. We're having more opportunities to sink into our hobbies and the things that maybe make us fulfilled outside of our work and life. So from that health and wellness perspective, looking forward, I think we're going to really have to kind of reconsider what work means in the uh, 21st century and how people are going to navigate this uh, work-life balance given the new knowledge that we have about you know what it's like for everybody to work from home all at the same time uh, the other side of that too is that COVID has really shone a, a spotlight on some of the inequities in our societies right now um, we're seeing very obviously that for a long time, a lot of those people who have been forced into the most dangerous and necessary positions in society are often those who are the least paid and members of minority, impoverished, or at-risk communities. So uh, I think we all have to go forward remembering this and working on the understanding that a lot of the people who are keeping our buildings running, keeping our retail spaces and our economies running, um, keeping things clean and safe for us all, those are the people who are maybe not getting paid fairly, who are not receiving appropriate um, benefits or union protections. Um, yeah, we have to really look at how the benefits of society are being spread across people, especially those in much poorer situations. Yeah, those are all fantastic points. And and I guess there's a couple of thoughts and maybe something I wanted to loop back to that you said earlier about consumerism, because when we when we uh, had this first sense of what was coming, um, people rushed out and people panic bought things uh, in quantities that were just not realistic, but also incredibly selfish. Um, and I and I reflect upon this, particularly with the thought of what happens next and hearing our government saying we need to get the economy moving again. Um, and that, to me, makes me nervous and speaks to that consumerism that you're talking about. I just wondered if you had any reflections upon that piece of behavior, either uh, individual families or even government behavior encouraging us to consume. Yeah, um, it's difficult to work in sustainability because you get certain perspectives put on you. And um, in a lot of ways, I would be seen as sort of the typical commie liberal who's super anti-capitalist, anti-consumer. Um, and it's not obviously not that um, not that simple. But I do find it very ridiculous that we're driven to re-engage in really intense consumer habits in the face of a pandemic that's really presenting these serious health consequences to a lot of people, uh, especially when you look at places down in the States where, you know, they're talking about sacrificing human lives as just the cost of business in really sort of unempathetic ways. Um, I think what we saw when people were going out and buying a lot of supplies, especially early on, is really fear-driven. Um, and we see that in a lot of uh, a lot of consumer attitudes, especially in these times of crisis. 
And I think people have to be willing to step away from that fear, look at a situation rationally, and also be able to trust the people around them that health and supports are going to be available. Um, Canada, we've been relatively lucky to uh, live in a pretty successful socialized democracy. And so I think we have sort of a higher level of understanding that, you know, our, our neighbors, our community members, our fellow Canadians will probably be able to help us, that we'll still have a healthcare system that was going to support us even if we have no money or, you know, if, if things really go down and out. But we're surrounded by evidence around the world and especially from our neighbors to the south that's much more individualistic in nature that is this sense of in a time of crisis you might not be able to trust your neighbors and therefore you have to go out and stock up on a year's supply of toilet paper because if you don't somebody else will and they're not going to give it to you and those kind of fears really drive an irrational style of consumerism that can be a really dangerous pressure on global sustainability so I think just remembering that we're part of this connected society, that we can rely on other people for support and that we should be looking at more community oriented models of, uh, of support and consumerism. Um, looking at things like what can I share with my neighbors? What can they share with us? Uh, looking at sort of more localized, um, I don't want to say swap, but like sort of sharing economies and things like that. Those sorts of things can really help us reduce consumer needs, manufacturing needs from around the globe and help us look at what exactly we do have that we can share with each other um, to make it a little more effective. Well, it makes me think too, when you were talking about when we have, uh, you know, it isn't necessarily a time of plenty. Are we used to this idea and should we get used to it? But it also drives these behaviors where there's a sense of a lack of resource and the question is, well, who has it? And so this is where we do get sort of issues with racism. Well, who is my neighbor and what are they doing here in the first place? And so I think it's throwing up some really interesting things. And I really appreciate the, the use of the word trust, because I think it's a word we're not we're not talking about very much at the moment. Um, even that concept of, well, employers have had to learn to trust their employees to work from home. Um, and it's it's worked, I would say, overwhelmingly it's worked. Well, doesn't, doesn't that change the world straight away? But even this question of then trusting uh, governments and those people responsible for us. So I think trust is a really interesting question in the world at the moment. And, um, you know, uh, leader approval ratings, well, it's mainly around trust, isn't it? And truth-telling or that sense of truth-telling. One really... Uh, interesting path forward that we can kind of start to investigate more following this and tied to that trust is the idea of universal bank basic income. And it's been talked about more in recent political cycles, um, but it's not a new concept globally. And in sustainability circles from on the economic side, um, it really addresses a lot of core issues in terms of um, people who find themselves at a lack of, of money and resources around the world. So there's a lot of questions to be asked in terms of if we were to implement something like that, what would it look like? How would we make it work? How would it be distributed? You know, how would it still provide incentive uh, for development and growth? But I think what we're seeing is that the old idea of if you give people free money, they just won't do anything that doesn't bear out. A lot of the people who've been asked to work from home are still finding ways to be very productive from home. Um, a lot of people who are, have maybe been laid off are finding ways to still contribute to their own personal development, to their communities. Um, there are a lot of ways that people are able to 
use their talents, their skills, their abilities to benefit the people around them, benefit the society they live in, rather than just, you know, going to an office and doing an assigned task for eight hours a day. I think we have to really open up our idea of what it means to share resources across people equally and give them the benefit of the doubt that they're still going to be using their talents and their and their position in society to be helping others with that. Yeah, I really appreciate that thought. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how wide ranging some of the thoughts around your work actually have. So uh, we're looking at um, the environment piece um, uh, for back for a moment, based upon what we're learning at the moment. Why, why don't we panic about the climate crisis and really take action like we're doing right now with COVID-19? So COVID-19 is one of these uh, issues that carries very immediate and visible risks. Uh, we're seeing people get sick, we're seeing people die, we're seeing it spread across the world. So people are able to act with this sense of urgency and in a lot of senses, fear in response to it. The climate crisis is something that acts over generations and a lot of its impacts are largely invisible. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to see uh, Arctic ice shelves. They're not going to see coral reef destruction and bleaching. They're not going to see you know, homes in Bangladesh that are gone because of sea level rise. So people have a much more difficult time responding to something of that nature. Our brains aren't really oriented towards long-term planning and we find it really difficult to act on intangibles. We need to almost have uh, visual reason and sort of something really logical and concrete to drive our behavior. And in the case of the climate crisis, it doesn't really offer us that, what we find ourselves having to do is trust people who have had those experiences. Maybe people from around the world who have lost their homes or who are seeing the direct impacts of climate change. Um, but in North America, those are have been a lot slower to hit aside from um, weather differences. And while nature itself is very susceptible to very small changes in temperature, humans just sort of see the difference between a 21 degree day and a 24 degree day and don't really notice the difference that much. So when we're responding to something like COVID, it's much easier to sort of galvanize around this immediate and clear risk and threat. Um, I think we have to do a better job of not portraying the threat of climate change to people, but making them understand about its protracted nature. Um, something a lot of people don't really understand, especially about emissions, is that um, atmospheric emissions don't really have a strong impact on global temperatures until about for about a 10 year delay or so, 10 to 20 even. When we were seeing a bunch of the first major changes in global temperature that we started to register around the beginning of this decade in 2010, 2012, something, um, a lot of those were due to emissions that were actually put into the air in the 1990s, in the early 2000s. So we have to consider that our emissions levels have risen drastically since then, and we're not going to feel the impacts of those until 10, 20 years down the line here. If we can get people to start realizing that this is going to be acting on a delay and we have to be considering what today's actions are going to be doing 10 years from now, uh, that's the correct way to be looking at the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's hard enough for people to decide, you know, what they're going to wear and eat tomorrow versus 10 years from now. So uh, it, it's a really, really difficult 
issue to try and get people's heads around. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's it's been good, really re-encouraging in recent times to see uh, youth galvanized um, and actually telling um, the leaders of the world what we should be doing about this, because I think that is going to be the critical piece. But um, but as I say, we find ourselves in the situation now to see what is actually possible when the world actually sees risk um, and uh, and actually the steps that can be taken. And I would imagine that Greta Thunberg is feeling pretty frustrated right now at seeing all of that in the rest of the world. But anyway, so th- there's, there's likely people listening who uh, like what they're hearing from you um, and are interested to find out more or get involved either on campus or in the community. Um, how can they go about doing that? Uh, Well, the easiest way to get involved on campus is just to reach out to our office, Um, sustainability.usas.ca, a very easy to remember website where we've got all the information on our website, all the programs and initiatives we offer. So you can go check out that just to kind of get an overview of what's going on on campus. Um, I recently was able to finish the uh, 2019 annual sustainability report while we were under quarantine there. So uh, you can go to the website and find out, just find kind of a a broad overview of everything that happened in 2019 there. Uh, we're on the way to doing our 2019-2020 GHG emissions report. So when that's out, we'll be able to see an updated look at what the university's emissions have been looking like and what we're trying to do on that front. Uh, you can always reach out to us directly too. The email is just as easy, sustainability at usas.ca. And myself and my colleague, Aaron, are always able to answer questions, to get people involved, to find ways that, you know, they can change their uh, their spaces around campus. It's a little more difficult when they're working at home because everybody's home is going to be different. We can't, you know, come and change up your your windows <laughs> to, to make them more efficient or something like that. But when you're we're back on campus, we do have a lot of funding mechanisms. Uh, the Sustainability Revolving Fund is there for larger projects that see um, energy and utility returns. We've got Work Green, which is our group of staff and faculty champions around campus. And we have funds and grant opportunities through there. So if you want to even do something as small as purchase a bunch of reusable cutlery or utensils or or plateware for your uh, for your small lunch space in your office, We'll give you the money to do that. Uh, we've helped offices install um, lighting sensors to make it a little more efficient, uh, the lighting more efficient in their offices. There's lots of ways that we can help offices actually bridge that little financial gap between sustainability and um, and uh, otherwise sort of seeing that as not accessible. Um, like we were kind of talking about before, it's really based on individual behavior and sustainability is very um, very unique to each person, each context, each location. So I always like to tell people, if you're interested in getting involved, you want to find out more you can do, reach out to us directly. Let's have a conversation and we'll find out, you know, what's going on in your life. That might be the easiest place to apply leverage. If we look at that psychological model of behavior change again, uh, it's really difficult to make major changes to your life, especially in places that you don't have a lot of incentive or there are a lot of barriers to your change there. So if we can find places where those barriers are minimal, that you can remove them, that you can make uh, sustainable behavior a little more convenient, those are the easiest places to start and then you can try and snowball from there. So anybody who wants to get involved, check out our website, give us a shout, interact with us directly. Now that we are on Microsoft Teams, it's really easy. You can send me a chat and I'm I'm always available there. So uh, yeah, lots of ways that we can 
figure out for people. Yeah, that's great. And we'll we'll put those uh, details of how to get in touch in the uh, podcast details. So I'm I'm asking all my guests to share one thing they're doing to be well right now, perhaps something that brings them joy or a sense of connection. What what would be that thing for you, Matt? And how do you find it helps? So for me, it's been uh, really being able to get back into my music lately. Uh, I've played piano since I was six. Uh, I played with a couple of bands throughout my life, but now with being stuck at home so often, uh, I'm not able to go out and practice with the band, not doing gigs or anything. So I've been getting a lot into um, digital audio producing and things like that. So I've kind of created my workstation around the office here. I've been getting some new equipment. I've experimented with a lot of new sort of tactics and really kind of teaching myself more about audio processing. So that's been something that's really been good for me because it's finding sort of this creativity that's, you know, been there with me for a very, very long time and letting it kind of branch out in, in new ways that I'm that are making me feel really sort of healthy and, and fulfilled in a lot of new ways. Yeah, that's great. And so is there a final thought that you'd want to leave listeners with? Um, just that. Uh, don't get overwhelmed with the gravity of the global sustainability situation and the complexity of it. It's what we call a wicked problem. Some of those problems that are far too large and complicated that we think that there's never going to be a solution. That's not true. It's just going to require millions and millions of little solutions. And you're one of those solutions. So Try not to get overwhelmed. Look at where you can make small changes in your life. Those changes will likely turn into other changes for yourself and they'll likely impact changes for the people around you as well. So um, that and then combine it with really just start reimagining and re-envisioning everything you do in your life. Look at your life with skepticism. Ask yourself, do I need to be buying this? Do I need to be using this much of this product? Um, is there a more environmentally friendly or a less wasteful version of this product that I can move to? Uh, is there a way I can use less energy while I'm doing this particular activity? Everything that you do should be looked at with a skeptical light. And over time, hopefully we can start to um, really challenge a lot of these consumer driven behaviors that are kind of making it difficult for us to live sustainably. Well, listen, I, I really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Matt. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Be Well at USAS podcast with me, Peter Headley. And thanks again to Matt for joining me and sharing. You can find out more about the work that Matt and the team at the Office of Sustainability does through the contact details and links in the down bar. Please check in again for further episodes and more content related to being well. Subscribe and share this podcast. You can find us on multiple platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. We'd also love to hear from you, so please post comments and questions, and we'll look to include them in future episodes. Also, if there's someone you'd like to see as a guest, a topic you'd like us to cover, or even a reaction to an episode you want to share, please write to us at bewell.podcast at usask.ca. So until next time, stay safe and be well.